I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1. I, I do remember, now that Josh brought it up, that B. And uh, he came to me with this B and he said, couldn't you just have mercy? And I said, uh, I did. So no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, so everything he said, I reciprocate. It's really true. It's such an honor to be with you because what I sense here uh, at Prince is this great merger of these two things. You have this great rich history and you can just sense this joy when you come into the room along with, I believe, an anticipation of great days ahead. Uh, because of uh, Josh's leadership, and so I'm so grateful for him, and, and we talk, um, as he said, uh, at least a couple of times a week, talking about preaching and leadership. I don't know of any major leadership decisions I've made at the church without consulting him. He's so gifted, uh, not only in preaching, but also in leadership, so what an honor it is to be here with you. Um, well, I, I have this great fear. I want to just confess to you this morning. And this fear is, is that 2021 won't be any different than 2020. Isn't that a horrible thought? Because 2020 was a terrible year. It was an awful year. There's no sense pretending it wasn't. It was just terrible. For those of us in pastoral leadership, it was so, so difficult. Um, so I'm not complaining. Every industry and everything was challenging. But I had so many people saying to me, Pastor, when are you going to be more stringent with the requirements? And then other people saying, Pastor, why are you so stringent with these requirements? And uh, you, just, you just can't win. It was the year of just embracing failure that is 2020, right? Can anybody else relate to that? And it was just, just a terrible, terrible year. But in this, in John chapter 1, there's a great promise I want us to think about this morning. Look at John chapter 1. Let's read the context and then we'll jump into it and we're going to spend the rest of our time in John 20. In John chapter 1, Jesus just performed what we might call a minor miracle. Here's the miracle. He's introduced to somebody named Nathaniel. And Jesus looks at Nathaniel, he's calling him to be his disciple. He says, you know, I knew you way back when you were under this fig tree. In other words, I knew you way back. Was that earlier today? Was that yesterday? I don't know. But Nathaniel's shocked that Jesus has prior knowledge about his life and existence. I knew you back then. And so Nathaniel says, that's incredible. You really must be the son of God. Here's Jesus' reply to the very end of John chapter 1. Look at verse 50. John 1, 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see. Now, I want you to say these next words after me. I'm going to say it again. These next two words are very important. You will see, let's say it together, greater things than these. Hey, isn't that a great promise for 2021? You're going to see greater things. You say, that's easy because 2020 was such a low bar. Now, that's true. But what if this was your year of greater things? And I want to specifically address this pessimism that may be in your heart. I know that is in mind, this anticipation that maybe that was true for Nathaniel. It was true for back then, but that's not true for me. This fear that asks these questions, does God really want to do that for me? And here's a deeper fear. Is it even right to ask? Isn't this promise that he gave to Nathaniel something that's singular, locked in this one moment of time? That's Bible times, not today. Is it even right for me to ask that? Now keep those questions in mind. Is God going to do that for me? Is it even right to ask? Let's keep those kind of shadowy questions in mind as we launch into the first greater thing that he did in the lives of the disciples. Jesus, the God-man, John 1.14 
word became flesh and dwelt among us, enters into a very common situation in John chapter 2, something we've all experienced. He goes to a wedding. Our story has a setting, and it has three scenes, and so let's look at it. Look at John chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's the setting for the story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the disciples are first called disciples right here. He's collected them. This is the first time they're addressed as a group. And notice it says on the third day. What does that mean? Well, there had already been three days in John 1. This is the third day after that third day. So on the sixth day where Jesus begins his ministry. What's the significance of that? Well, just as a sidebar, the significance is John 1.1 begins with this. In the beginning was the word. Where else in the Bible do you hear the words in the beginning? Somebody tell me. Genesis. So when John writes the gospel of John, he's trying to draw a parallel. In Genesis, God creates all things, but in John, things are being recreated. On the sixth day in Genesis, God created man. And in the sixth day of Jesus' ministry, he's creating faith in the heart of man. And so this is the setting for our story. John is anticipating something big is about to happen. And so here's the first scene. Look at it there in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's just a really, really interesting and almost comical kind of conversation on many different levels. First of all, when Jesus goes to this wedding, this wedding is broken. Almost every wedding has a problem in it. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Well, it's because no wedding can ever meet the expectations that are set. Some were set at childhood. My wedding is going to be this. It's formal. We're not normally used to that. We're dressed in clothes. We're not never used to. Something's going to go wrong. There's actually fire on stage with the candles that always produces some type of humor. Uh, we've all got a wedding story. I started thinking through all the wedding stories I've had as a pastor. I'm not going to share any of those today. But just think about it. Some weddings, they just, they go off the rails. And this one had, in an exponential way, the wine ran out. Now, here's the thing. The wine was something that they didn't have a lot of. It wasn't excessive. And so when you came to the wedding, you expected an excessive amount of wine. And if this wine actually ran out, it would be catastrophic. It's not just like a bad catering experience. It's catastrophic. Imagine that. Your daughter falls in love with and marries the wealthiest man in Atlanta. And they get taken to the nicest hotel where you're going to have this elaborate wedding. And you get down there and you find out that actually it was a joke. It's not going to happen. You have to take back all your Facebook posts. You have to go back and explain to everyone. You'll get over it, but it will always be a thing. That's what this is about. The wine ran out. And the wine represents joy. So here was a wedding that was about to go from this incredibly joyous celebration to, to something that was a complete failure. The joy was going to be sucked out of this occasion. The wine ran out. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to Jesus and says, the wine ran out. Now, that wasn't an observation. That was a request. 
If I say to you, you're standing on my foot, that's an observation, but it's really a request, right? Get off my foot. Mary says, you know, the wine ran out. In other words, Jesus, do something about this. You know, Mary was saying, that I know who you are. Jesus, you have a completely in the realm of possibilities to fix this situation. So here you go. A perfect moment at the beginning of your ministry to display who you are. Go for it, Jesus. In other words, Jesus, she was saying, let's now see some of these greater things. Mary is like we are with whatever prayer request you have in your heart. God, would you do something different this next year with my kids, my grandkids, my finances, uh, my business, whatever it is, my own personal hurts and ambitions and addictions and all these type of things. God, would you fix these things? Jesus, here's your moment. The wine has run out. The joy, I don't have joy in this area of my life. So fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. And here's Jesus' very, very odd response. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now let's deal with the obvious thing first. Why does Jesus call his mom woman? It's not something I would recommend to your mom or to your wife. Why does he do this? Well, it wasn't a term of disrespect really at all. In fact, remember Jesus on the cross looks at John and says, behold your mother and says to his mom, woman, behold your son. That was the most endearing thing he could ever do. He was taking care of his mom in his final breath. So Jesus was not disrespecting her. That wasn't the point. But although he wasn't disrespecting her position, he was distancing himself from her plans. She was saying, in effect, look, Jesus, I know that you're the Messiah, but they don't know. Here's a, here's a platform. Here's a moment where you can show off and show out. Show them who you really are. Display your glory and let's get on with this display of glory. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Well, in John, the hour always refers to his crucifixion which is followed by his resurrection, of course, and his ascension, the time where Jesus would suffer but ultimately be glorified. And so in a weird way, Mary was saying, Jesus, why don't you just skip the cross and let's just go straight for the glory. And without disrespecting her, Jesus looks at her and says, look, this wedding is broken, but my father's plans are still on. Mom, this is not about your will. This is about my father's plans. My hour has not yet come. Now, I, I can relate to Mary because all the things that we want in life, perfect peace, prosperity, perfect health, comfort, success, Jesus promises all of those in perfect measure, but he promises those in the life to come, in the kingdom that will be, not in the kingdom that is. And so it's good, I guess, and right for us to realize that all that God is going to give to me, he will give to me. I'm going to have all the happiness and health and wealth I really want, in, but I'm going to have it in the next life, not in this life. Jesus has to remind Mary that the answer to her question is yes, but not yet. My hour has not yet come. This wasn't a hard no. It was actually putting her off, if you will. And so many times I come to God with my problems and he says, look, I, all of that's going to be true, just not now. Just not now. So that's the first scene of the story. Jesus has to kind of put it in a, in a if I could say, a theological, biblical framework for her. You're going to have all of that, but not now. 
So what happens next? Well, look at the second scene. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, why were these large jars out there? Well, the jars were there because when they would come into the wedding, they would take the water, they would pour it over themselves, and it was a ritual. It wasn't like actually cleansing themselves. They weren't actually sanitizing themselves. There was no department of health that would pass this for being COVID-friendly or anything like this. That's not what it's for. It was just a ritual. And these jars were empty. But there may be something symbolic there, too, is that when the joy was taken out of their life, there was no religious ritual that could replace it. Judaism had lost its ability to help them. It was empty. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And by the way, look, each one held 20 or 30 gallons. And there's six of them. This is a lot of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, the master of the feast was a master of ceremonies, someone who's conducting the events, but also ultimately this master of the feast would have been responsible for having this wine and making sure it was taken care of. And so this is going to be an embarrassment on him if this was not taken care of. So look at what happens next, verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely and the poor wine, but they have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I've always wondered something about this story. And that is, when did the water become the wine? Have you ever wondered that? And when they were filling it up, perhaps from some well somewhere, did it become wine then? Was it always water until he poured it into the glass? You don't know. Um, what's interesting about this, there are so many gallons of water. This would have been well over 100 bottles of wine. So it may speak to the fact that this is a large wedding. Or it may speak to the fact that Jesus was just doing something massive and excessive. But the point is, is John wants to make it clear, this is a huge miracle. But the other thing that John also wants to make clear is that Jesus does no showboating. There's no grandstanding. This is almost the opposite of what Mary implies. He just kind of does it subtly. Why? Well, because technically this is not a miracle in the kind of the big, huge sense of the world. In fact, in the Greek, John doesn't even use the word miracle. John never used the word miracle. He always used the word sign. Because this was not some way to show off. Jesus could have done incredible things to show off. I mean, if you had the power of Jesus and I had the power of Jesus, what would we do with that? I would levitate everywhere I went. I'd never walk again. Every meal would be the best meal I've ever had. And I would have the capacity to get full between Christmas and New Year's so I could just eat all that I wanted. I and mean, what kind of weird things would we do with that power if we had it? But Jesus never did. He's not showing off. This was not a miracle for the sake of having a miracle. It was a sign. This is very important because John said in John 20, 31, the whole purpose of his book was that these things are written that you might believe. So, massive thing that God is doing, huge plan of God, but this one sign, this one little miracle had one specific purpose and to lead them to believe. 
And if you look back at verse 11, that's exactly what happened. The disciples believed in him. It was effective. And he manifested his glory. So what does that mean? Well, John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory. This is it. They're beholding the glory of God as he's working here. It's manifested, it's showing up, and it leads them to believe. You say, wait a minute, they were disciples. I thought they already believed. Well, yes, they had a, a baseline of knowledge, of course. They accepted the general facts, but they had to grow in their belief. And so do we. So let me just stop here and say again, we need these greater things. As believers, we need to see these greater things because I have a baseline of faith, but I need my faith to grow. I need it to become stronger. So back to our questions we began with. The main idea of this text is really clear. Jesus did a sign to show his glory, to lead them to believe, and it was effective. That's what he did. But will Jesus do that for me? And is it even right to ask? And I want to say that, yes, you this year and me this year, you should pray for greater things. And here's why. Two reasons you should pray for greater things. And these are the things I want to write down. This is the application, the conclusion for the message. This is what I want you to challenge you to pray through about this next week as we go into the new year. Here's why you should pray for greater things. Because the pattern of prayer has not changed. Just write that down. We'll unpack it. The pattern of prayer has not changed. What do you mean? Well, go back to verse 3. Jesus was invited to the wedding of his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? The hour has not yet come. Here's the pattern of prayer. Mary did three things. The first was she believed. Now notice it says at the end that the disciples came to believe. They believed, but it doesn't say that about Mary. She was already there. This is why Mary's at the beginning of the story and the disciples at the end of the story. The miracle flows from her faith, but leads to their faith. She already believed. So the first thing is, you have to believe that God can really work. Now, again, this is a pattern. I'm not isolating this and saying, looking at something special that Mary did. Read the book of James. We see God work when we really believe. The second thing is, is she prayed, of course, obviously. But here's the third thing, and this is where I would say 90% of us miss it when it comes to prayer, including myself. She persisted. Now, just think about this. She persisted. Um, so look at the verse five. Jesus had just told her, look, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is a massive theology lesson she's just received. Mom, I appreciate your confidence in me, but here's the answer. No, I'm not going to do it. And so she says to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. There is no sense that she feels rebuffed. There's no sense she feels put off. And there's no sense she's taking no for an answer. So Jesus tells her a flat out no. She says, fine, fine, I get it. She calls the servants, don't, don't go anywhere. Stay, stay close. Do whatever he tells you. There's no sense. She, she's expecting something to happen. 
So she believed, she prayed, and she persisted. Now, please listen to me. This is so important. I'm not telling you that Mary was onto some secret. I mean, if we could publish a book like The Prayer of Mary, The Mary Code, The Secret Prayer of Mary, we could sell a million of those this time next Christmas. Maybe we should do that. But that's not the point. Um, if that were the case, Mary was just onto something, that would be a single isolated event. And I would say to you, look, this is observation leading to the glory of Christ, but it's not application leading to the glory of Christ. But I'm telling you, this is not just an observation about Mary, it's an application to us, and here's the reason why. This, what Mary just did, believing, praying, and persisting, is the pattern of prayer in the New Testament. It's all over the place. Mary is just simply the model of what we should all be doing. We could go on and on talking about this, but let me give you a couple examples. Jesus told 35 parables, 35 parables. Only two of them about prayer. They're found in Luke 11, uh, the friend at midnight, and Luke 18, the persistent widow. And you know what's interesting? They have the exact same theme. Pray and keep praying. At the end of Luke chapter 11, the friend at midnight, Jesus says this, ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. The idea of a one and done kind of prayer, we'll pray for something and then move on, is just simply not a biblical prayer. Not because God needs to be worn down, not because God wants to be reminded, but when we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray, we communicate confidence that God, you really are the only one in a position to affect this situation. And do you understand that acknowledging desperation in, is its, in itself is an act of faith? When we're desperate, we're acknowledging, God, I don't have a financial resources, a relationship, a wise counselor. I don't have anyone else who can fix this, God, but, but you. And so praying and praying and praying, praying and praying, praying is not advocated because we don't believe in God, but rather because we believe in him. We don't stop asking. And, and Mary locked onto that and, and she saw the greater things. It's just fascinating to me that she's got this great theology lesson and then Jesus turns around and he does it. He does it. It's not that he was working against his will, but listen, a prayerfully persistent person works in concert with God's will. They just get to see the manifested glory because they, they wouldn't stop praying. This is a sweet time around family, so maybe you can echo the sentiment that I can echo, is that the reason that I'm standing here today, the reason why I think I'm a believer and all the other good things I have in my life is because specifically my mom would not stop praying for me. Can anybody else echo that? Just didn't give up. And so, what do you want to see in 2021? What greater thing do you want to see? What about your family? What, what about all the different things in your life? The pattern of prayer has not changed. Believe, pray, keep praying. Here's the second reason I think God wants to show us, you, me, the greater things this year. Because the purpose of prayer has not changed. Look at what Jesus was after. We've read it, but let's go back and read it again at verse 11. Look at John 2, 11. But this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. 
The word manifest means something existed, but now it's obvious. It's seen, so we know that Jesus is glorious, but it's seen. This is the function of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14, and we have seen his glory. So God doesn't want us just to acknowledge his existence. He wants to manifest his presence among us. He wants us to see him operative and all the glory drawn to him. The glory of God is the chief motivation for all the things we want him to do. Why do we want to be an effective church and a growing church and a dynamic church and ones that impacts the community? Because we want Jesus to be glorified. Not because that's some kind of spiritual phrase we throw out there, but Jesus really does have all the glory. And the more attention we draw to him, the more honest we are. Just all the glory doesn't go to us. All the glory goes to Jesus. So he says, that Jesus did these in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So is there any sense that Jesus wanted to draw glory to himself then, but doesn't want to draw glory to himself now? <laughs> is Jesus any less glorious? Well, no. In fact, I'm going to read John chapter 17. You can take your Bible and turn there. If you want John chapter 17, you know this. This is a high priestly prayer. Jesus told Mary at the beginning of this parable, look, my hour has not yet come. But look at what Jesus said to his father. This is John 17 and verse 1. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, look at this. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And look at what else Jesus said in verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus always had glory with the Father in heaven. He came down to earth. People didn't understand this. And so he withheld, if you will, John 2, uh, the, one, the, the turning of water to wine. He withheld his glory. So he didn't show it all because he still had to accomplish what he really came there to do. His death, resurrection, ascension. But then he got to the end and he says, okay, look, now it's time, Father, glorify, restore me back to the way things are. So if Jesus wanted to show his disciples a sign to lead them to believe so they could see his glory, even in that moment we're somewhat repressed, how much more does Jesus want to manifest his glory now? I was maybe in elementary school. A friend of mine had a go-kart. Um, my dad was not a gearhead. He didn't know how to operate on things, and he thought they would all kill us. And so we didn't have go-karts or mini bikes or things like this. So I was thrilled to be on this friend who had a go-kart. And he told me, he said, you know, this go-kart would go a lot faster if it didn't have the governor on it. And he laughed. I said, yeah, of course it would go faster if it did. I had no idea what he was talking about. Why, why is the governor keeping his go-kart from going slower? Uh, I didn't understand this, but a governor, those of you who know these things, it keeps the accelerator only going down so much. In other words, a go-kart may be able to go 70 miles an hour, but when you're an inch off the ground, you shouldn't do that. So the governor says, no, we're going we're to stop that. You can only go this fast because it would be more it would be dangerous to go any faster. And there was a moment in time where Jesus said to Mary, Mary, look, I... I could do more, and you know I could do more, but there's a governor on what I'm going to do right now. It's time. It's my hour. The timing is not right. 
but gets to John chapter 17 and the governor's lifted. Glorify me, Father, because now the time is right. The hour is come for you to glorify me. And listen to me very carefully. We are living in that hour. And I don't, I don't know when I go to God in prayer, if God is going to say to me, look, I'm going to answer that quest, but in eternity, not now. I don't know. But I don't know that he's not. So when we fall on our knees, our only logical choice is the spiritual optimism that says, God, based upon your word, I can draw another conclusion that you want to manifest yourself in this moment right now. And if you say, no, that's fine. But I do know, Lord, that you want to glorify yourself. And so, God, would you do it now, right now, in this moment? The pattern of prayer has not changed. So pray for greater things. And the purpose of prayer has not changed to glorify Jesus. So pray that he would do that in this situation. Now let me pray this prayer of Paul over us as we close from Pastor Josh's baby favorite book of the Bible. This is Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, greater things. According to the power of the work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May that be true in this generation. Father God, we are grateful for your love for us. Father, we thank you for how good you are to us. And God, here we are on the cusp of another calendar year. God, could we go to bed tonight? And in the coming days, with the great faith of anticipation that wants you to do greater things this next year, Father. Addictions to be broken, relationships to be reconciled, marriages to come back together, hope restored, Father. Lord, we leave here today believing that would be true. And we pray it in Jesus' name.